Howdy, folks. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb, and I am the redneck. And you're damn right I've gone green. And my hope is that I can convince you to go green, too. But make no mistake about it. Yes, it's the Green Party, but I am not an electoral fetishist. When I say go green, I mean deep ecology. And as a redneck, I mean, yeah, I'm a redneck. But I also know the history of uh, Redneck that goes back to Blair Mountain and the coal miners, goes back uh, to the Scottish revolutionaries. The point is this, y'all. This whole program is designed to confront reality. And here's the reality. We are living in revolutionary times. That's because the entire structure of society is being reorganized. Whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, whether Jeff Bezos, Donald Trump, Warren Buffett, it don't matter who likes it or doesn't like it. Objective reality is changing. And here's why. Because we got an ecological catastrophe. It's not coming. It's here and getting worse every day. And newsflash, it's going to get worse. But wait, there's more. We also are legally living in truly end-stage capitalism. I used to say late-stage capitalism, but I think that we're literally in the end game of how the current political economy works. Why? Because automation, robotics, technology, and now artificial intelligence is literally forcing how goods and services are produced and distributed are completely changing. And if we actually had democratic control over this technology, y'all would be living in paradise, right? Th th like there's enough to go around and it would be amazing. But unfortunately, a small, I almost said ruling elite, but I've stopped myself. A predatory class has literally controlled, seized and have control of both the means of production and these two, two technologies. And lastly, the political crisis, right? So we have an ecological crisis. We have an economic crisis. Those two crises are provoking this current political crisis. And the political crisis is the current political system cannot solve any of these problems. To be clear, I don't mean that the current political system can't solve the problem of white supremacy or heteropatriarchy. This political system was not designed to solve those problems. I'm saying something different. I'm saying this system cannot even do what it was designed to do, which is maintain order. Fascism is rising, not only in this country, but across the globe as a rational, reasonable, horrific, and evil response to those crises. So here at Redneck Gone Green, what we're saying is, we believe the only way to confront fascism is to create systems and processes that make the seeds of fascism wither and die. Neoliberalism is not the answer. The Democratic Party leadership exhortation to Trump is horrible, vote harder, ain't going to get it done. We're going to have to build new systems and structures even as the system collapse. That's what Redneck Gone Green is all about. Every week we come to you with a guest to do a deep dive on a particular topic that says, all right, it's awful. Ain't it awful? What is to be done? It's in that spirit that I'm very excited to say the topic this week, mutual aid. And 
I am a practitioner of mutual aid and the creator of mutual aid networks. I know that they can be incredibly powerful, very uplifting. I also know that there are some specific limits. I'm going to be bringing in another colleague, friend, comrade who is knee deep in practicing mutual aid right now. Her name is Michelle Edelman McCormick. Uh, I've gotten to know Michelle Edelman in her role as a co-founder of Cooperation Vermont. They're doing amazing work. Uh, and if you, unless you've been under a rock, you know that Vermont has just got, undergone like once in a, I don't know, 500 year flood. These things are happening all the time, right? But the point is she is actually doing, building new institutions and had to shift on a dime and start mutual aid networks. So we're going to talk to her about what she's learned. With that, I want to welcome my friend, Michelle Edelman McCormick to Redneck Gone Green. Hey, Michelle. Hey, David. Thanks so much for having me on tonight. It's good to see you. It's always good to see you. And again, like we know each other. So let's just be super transparent here. Right. Uh, and I also want to encourage folks because a couple of people have already done so. Use that comment section. Our friend, Michelle, Rebecca Laurie is uh, on the line, uh, sending you uh, some love. Catherine is here. Uh, so we've got uh, a couple of other listeners. So I'm going to encourage folks, feel free to use that comment section, ask a question, make a comment. But really, the whole point here is to do a deep dive on mutual aid. But before we do that, Michelle, I know who you are. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the Redneck Gone Green audience to say, who the hell are you and why do you do what you do? <laughs> Good question. Sometimes I ask myself that actually. Um, so again, you know, my name is Michelle Edelman McCormick and um, I currently reside in Marshfield, Vermont, which is in central Vermont um, along the U.S. 2 corridor. It's a very small town and people don't often know where it is, but it's not far from Montpelier. And um, currently I am the director at Cooperation Vermont and the general manager of the worker-owned cooperative at the Marshfield Village store. And I'm also a coordinator at Regeneration Corps and, um, and of course the Cooperation Vermont Community Land Trust that we've recently formed. Um, and, and I also serve locally as the chair of our local planning commission and a trustee at our Jack with library. So I wear a lot of hats currently, um, and, uh, feel like sometimes I, I'm a circus, a, a clown in a three ring circus with all the juggling that I do. Um, but prior to coming to Vermont, um, I had moved up from Naples, Florida, and prior to that was in New Orleans after uh, Hurricane Katrina doing disaster response work in the Lower Ninth Ward. And then after, you know, leaving, um, I was only supposed to be in New Orleans for nine days. And three years later, I left after my first son was born. And because uh, it was still just not, not a place that, you know, made sense um, for me to, to be without any family. So I'm going to stop uh, you for a minute, yeah. uh, Michelle, because like you just said it so casually, right? But I really want to underscore to the audience, our listeners, our viewers. Uh, so you literally transplanted yourself uh, from your corporate job, because I know you had a, a well-paying corporate job. You went down, you were expecting you were going to take your vacation time and start doing some direct aid or mutual aid, uh, direct 
uh, assistance in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, right? I was actually um, at that time living in uh, San Francisco and then working at the East Bay Community Law Center. So that wasn't my my corporate job shtick. I was, uh, you know, still um, kind of, I don't know, wide-eyed and hopeful um, about the nonprofit industrial complex as I've come to know it <laughs> at the time. This is in my, my mid-20s. And so I left that job uh, on a vacation for nine days and ended up uh, taking the rest of my vacation. And then they let me have a sabbatical. And then I ended up just, you know, making the, the permanent dive to uh, stay, you know, doing the work that I was doing in New Orleans in the Lower Ninth Ward. And, um, and then went on to, to do a, a project that was the, the program director for um, a project that was providing primary pediatric and uh, mental health services to children in these mobile units that had zero access to any form of health care um, after the storm um, when my, my first son was born. And, uh, and then he just got to the age where he couldn't be um, in his little sling that I used to carry him around in and actually wanted to get down on the ground and crawl around and have a normal kid life. And, and I couldn't be in New Orleans anymore. Um, and that's when I went to Naples, Florida. So hold on a second, because before yeah. like, you, you, you put three years in, in New Orleans and the Katrina aftermath. And so really, I'm not trying to blow sunshine up your ass, Michelle, but like that's kind of the, the proving ground for the most extensive effort to do mutual aid in real time as the result of a disaster that we've had in this country. Yeah. I mean, it, in the, you know, I uh, don't know how much time we want to spend on it, but that, that was massive and it was, uh, you know, very uh, cross cutting in, in so many ways. And in, in the lower ninth ward, uh, for my time that I was there, I was responsible for, you know, a project that, one, you know, challenged the government's uh, position to keep people out of the neighborhood. Um, they literally had it sealed off for, the uh, storm happened in end of August, September, October, November, over three, to, um, about almost four months. They had it completely sealed off where nobody could come in or out of the neighborhood. So people's flood damaged properties were just literally sitting like they were the day after the storm. They couldn't go in and check on their properties. They couldn't go and try and retrieve their belongings. They couldn't go in and look for loved ones who were still missing. Right. And so Michelle, there, uh, uh, Rebecca asked in the ground in the chat, were you in new Orleans as a lawyer? I was not. And, um, and after being in New Orleans uh, and working with the East Bay Community Law Center before that, um, after like the first two years, I actually sat for the, the LSATs and considered going to, to law school. And, uh, and then I had my first son and that kind of changed uh, the trajectory. But I, I think it was still, I mean, aside from my son being absolutely amazing, um, the, the right course of, of action for me, because I think I would have uh, ended up feeling pretty futile trying to fight the good fight within the, the quote, legal system. 
So, Michelle, I'm going to stop you for a moment because I know that many of our viewers and listeners are always inspired by, but oftentimes in the comments and questions, uh, what I want to do is say, all right, so you're in New Orleans doing, quote, mutual aid. Tell us in your best definition, what would you say mutual aid is and what did it look like in New Orleans? So that's a two-part question. And the, the first part of what did it look like for the project that I was working on was one, you know, challenging that um, look and leave. So then they opened up the neighborhood to a look and leave where you could come in, you could drive wherever you could drive, where the roads had been cleared enough, but you had to be out by four o'clock and PM and you couldn't get out of your car and you couldn't go onto property and you couldn't touch anything. So on January 1st, um, we staged a direct action where we got a lease on a house that was flood damaged and went in with a hundred volunteers, full Tyvex and respirators and, and the whole thing and started working on a house. And of course the national guard and local police and, um, and Blackwater <laughs> black was first time, uh, the Blackwater ever was, was ever deployed on us soil was after, uh, hurricane Katrina in new Orleans. So Blackwater, was there as well. Um, and uh, we weren't sure what they were gonna do, but they didn't do anything except just lurk about. And so we proceeded to work. And then so, we came back the next day. And so the, the idea was that we would be challenging that order. Either you're going to arrest us and we would have standing to challenge that in court, or you weren't gonna arrest us and it would serve to normalize other people being able to work on their properties as well. And the latter is what ended up happening. And so folks, I, I really want to underscore, so mutual aid, like at its most simple form, is simply voluntary reciprocal exchange of resources that are needed for mutual benefit. Uh, in this case, and in most cases, it is a response to disaster relief. And what you're seeing is, and, and listening to Michelle Edelman McCormick of Cooperation Vermont explaining in New Orleans how they literally said, we're going to force the state to either acknowledge that people have the right to go back to their homes or you got to arrest us. Like either way, it's a win because we have a movement ready to move on either one of those. So before we go further, Michelle, Catherine, who's a, a frequent viewer and listener, asked, wait a minute, what reason did the government give for not letting folks go in to check on their own damn property? That's a very good question. And, um, and it's just a, another really gloriously uh, obvious case in point of how these disasters are used, you know, to, to further consolidate real estate markets and for big land grabs. Um, just a few months prior to the storm where, you know, so the Lower Ninth Ward is that neighborhood that the canal runs across where everybody saw the barge break the canal in the storm and well, actually it was after the storm. So that's another thing, right? Is like the storm had actually passed um, when the levee broke and then 14 feet of water rushed within minutes into the lower ninth ward. But that industrial canal intersects with the Mississippi river. And there was a naval station at that corner of the Mississippi river and the industrial canal. And just a few months prior to the storm, the uh, Port of Orleans had contracted with the, um, the naval station to actually take that over and to convert it to a cruise ship terminal 
that would be capable of docking three cruise ships simultaneously. So now all of a sudden this, you know, historically uh, black neighborhood, this is some of the first land in New Orleans that, you know, black folks were able to uh, allow to build on, right? And we're talking generational homes, like multi-generational homes, um, has some of the, home, you know, highest home ownership rates in, in the country, actually. And now all of a sudden, this, this neighborhood is in the way of their parking lots and t-shirt shops. So this was a prime opportunity. You know, they, they thought they were going to have to do it the old-fashioned way, you know, lot by lot, block by block, uh, you know, buying up and, and kicking people out of their properties and, you know, condemning homes and, and all the usual tactics. And then the storm came through and uh, within a few minutes um, had accomplished, in their mind, what they had long hoped for, because this neighborhood is also an extension of a series of gentrifying, you know, projects that it goes from like the French Quarter to this, you know, also somewhat bougie and upcoming, you know, Marigny to the Bywater. And then on the other side of that canal is the part of the, the Lower Ninth Ward called the Holy Cross. So, yeah, it was a big land grab scheme and they were just outright you know, keeping people from, you know, coming, coming home. And, uh, and so Catherine, I, I, I want to stop for a moment because I want to make sure that both Catherine and everybody listening or watching understands that the only rational reason for not allowing people in particular neighborhoods, it was straight up racism, right? Like there wasn't even any bones about it. Uh, it was literally to carry out disaster capitalism to allow the predatory class to say, oh, we've had our eyes on this uh, for a minute. And they literally used it as an opportunity and gave the excuse of, oh, it's not safe here. But interestingly, other places people were allowed to go back to, but they, they specifically forbid folks in particular neighborhoods not to return to their property. Fair? Fair. I mean, that's exactly what happened. So we, um, you know, from there, we mold remediated the house and then we started sleeping in it overnight and then furthering the process of normalizing people being in, in the neighborhood um, overnight. And, um, and, it, and it's important, I think, to note also that there were individuals who never left. Right. They and rode out that storm, survived on their roofs, in their trees, like National Guard flying over to get to the white neighborhood on the other side of the Lower Ninth Ward, literally helicopter flying over people for days while people hung in their trees in the Lower Ninth Ward. Catherine has the right response in the, in the comments section. She says, this pisses me off. Are some folks still trying to re recover their property or do you know? So, you know, the, 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 that end of the fight literally took, you know, a couple of years and is, and is actually ongoing, right, um, to this day. And we're, this, you know, Hurricane Katrina happened in 2005, so 18 years later. Um, you know, we did serve to, to normalize that. We got more leases on fledged damaged houses and opened up a distribution center. We were giving out, you know, food and cleaning supplies and that sort of thing. But it was really as folks were now in that look and leave status, 
were coming through the neighborhood and they would see us there and we were able to get in contact with uh, folks and then ask them, you know, hey, can we help you with your house? Can we go and do a structural assessment? Can we go and muck it out? Can, you know, we go, you know, gut it, mold remediate it, you know, can we help you with your, your property? And we created a tool lending library and, uh, and then we ended up opening up, you know, some temporary housing and a community kitchen because people were displaced all over the place trying to come back and work on the weekends and at nights and then different things um, on their property, but there was no place to stay while they did. And so, you know, there were there were times where like the spring break after the storms, that would have been like March of 2006, we had a thousand volunteers just in the lower ninth ward. And I think that that is, you know, was, was a really extremely eye-opening um, experience for me as well, because there were folks who came in from all over. While the, the main forces that were grounding for long-term, you know, volunteers, uh, the various projects throughout the city and in the Lower Ninth Ward were people who were politically minded and were activist oriented. There were folks who came in from baseball teams from the Midwest. We had groups of Mennonites. We had, you know, college students on break from uh, for spring break. But we had a thousand, you know, volunteers uh, in the in the month of March that year, just in the Lower Ninth Ward. People came from all over, and everybody was just, you know, heartbroken, angry. You know, there was a lot of anger, right? And some of that anger I, I still carry today. <laughs> and uh, you know, um, and uh, it, it's a, it's. I think these, you know, the the these disasters and these mutual aid opportunities. So like going back to, I think really to one of your core questions, right? It's like, what is mutual aid? What differentiates it from like charity work, right? It is, you know, for me, the the, the political point of all of it, right? It's, it's two points. It is building local, you know, resilience and working class, you know, taking care of itself with each other, for each other in a way that um, highlights Right, the contradictions of capital. It highlights the 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 role. The the what's mm, not there's a word I can't think of it. The discrepancies between the role that people think the government is supposed to play, and the role that it actually plays. Right, right. And M Michelle, uh, I want I want to stop for a moment because I I need to interrupt just long enough to remind sure. viewers and listeners. You're watching and or listening to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the redneck who's gone green and trying to convince you to do it too. We're talking to Michelle Edelman McCormick. Michelle is a co-founder of Cooperation Vermont uh, as a longtime social change agent and skilled mutual aid practitioner. Uh, she's talking about her experience in New Orleans. I also want to remind you, if you're listening or watching, please comment like, share, like this is the only way we can bust through the corporate algorithm so that more and more folks are able to participate. I'm happy to tell you we're getting hundreds of viewers. Uh, we're getting uh, thousands of readers on Substack. So make sure you subscribe to us on Substack. I put out a writing every week. Uh, we do a weekly podcast and this video blog. Uh, we're on Rumble. We're on YouTube. We're about to get onto Facebook. So it's working. Michelle, the other thing I want to do is to bring up for me, speaking about being pissed off, 
uh, infamous photograph or a series of photographs. You, you'll probably recognize it. Jackrabbit, throw that up on the screen, will you? Because this, to me, really underscores. I knew Joe you were Michelle, what, what are we looking at? I knew you were going to put that up. These are two headlines, right? <laughs> One so let, is, you know, people, Let me read like, the headline since yeah, I know it. I can tell you off the top of my head, but you go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm no, hit it. Go ahead. It. No, 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 go ahead. I don't want to. So on the left, it reads, a young man walks through chest deep water after looting a grocery store in New Orleans on Tuesday, August 30th, 2005. Floodwaters continue to rise in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina did extensive damage when it made landfall on Monday. It's an AP photo. That's the one on the left. You ready? The one on the right. Two residents wade through chest deep water after finding bread and soda from a local grocery store after Hurricane Katrina came through the area on August 29 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Katrina was downgraded to a Category 4 storm as it approached. Also an AP story. So the same damn uh, uh, entity are putting out these images the same basic time. Michelle, help me figure out what's going on here. Good old fashioned racism. Live and well, you know, I mean, and, and that's that that. Uh, um, continues, right? I mean, like that that is one iconic example of, you know, the, that just the AP and right after Katrina and that discrepancy, but that, that gets repeated over and over and over and over. And then I start to see like, you know, the, these, uh, um, uh, things popping up after, you know, storm. So then, so then, you know, after, after Katrina, I moved to, to Naples, Florida. So I'm still in hurricane alley. Right. And then I end up, um, uh, Ask Michelle to look at the camera. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, y'all. Um, I'm uh, on my phone and I'm also not It's all good. Case. It's all good. Uh, so anyway, um, my neighborhood gets hit by uh, Hurricane Irma. And I ended up um, stepping up in my community there and doing a bunch of mutual aid work there. And, uh, and so then, you know, after, you know, each of these hurricanes that are coming through or do come through or about to come through, there's just one, one after another um, in, you know, the Gulf uh, states. And uh, so, you, you know, you start to see people put it preemptively putting things on their, you know, houses like looters will be shot and, uh, you know, looters be warned and people threatening violence uh, about, you know, what they call, you know, looters. And it's just like, you know, just absolutely no uh, perspective at all of like what it means to be actually out there literally trying to figure out how to survive from moment to moment. And those, yeah. Yeah, so that, yeah, <laughs> I, I know that this can trigger some uh, complex PTSD for you. So thanks for hanging in there with us and thanks for what you do. I do want to point out that Rebecca puts into the comments, the New Orleans Lower Ninth Ward hit the repeat button in Maui. Disaster capitalism is here. It's happening. Mutual aid takes a different tack because of different values. 
And I do want to shift, right? For, so you are literally in Vermont and you went there, what, about a year and a half ago, I think, literally as a climate refugee. About two years, yeah. Yeah, two years. So, so tell us what, because I know the story, right? I was uh, about what you've done in Vermont. But when you landed in, like, why Vermont? And what did you do? So why why Vermont? You know, after um, after New Orleans, and since then, you know, it's been a series of ongoing conversations, um, you know, about the the rise of fascism in our country and about you know the realities of of climate change, um, and trying to you know think through the, to the best that, that that we can, you know, where are the future generations of movement leaders, of revolutionaries going to be able to potentially, you know, live and, and survive and thrive and carry on the movement um, in, a, in a worst case scenario, right? And Vermont, you know, is slated to be one of those places that uh, is going to be more climate resilient. And people are like, wow, <laughs> about those floods in July, you know, it, do I still think that that's, that's the case? And they actually, you know, actually, yes, yes, I do. And, um, and I'm actually more affirmed in, in that uh, perspective that, um, you know, Vermont is going to be, you know, more resilient than, there's no safe place in, in this climate, you know, you know, change paradigm, just as there's no safe space in this, in this empire. Right. Um, but, uh, I do think that it's going to, you know, continue to be more resilient. So that, that was the idea of, you know, making the move to Vermont and starting to see it a project that, um, you know, hopefully the idea is that, you know, we're able to create a zone that, um, is able to be self-sustaining, um, as an example to other communities about, you know, how they can also be self-sustaining. So not just, you know, on some isolationist, you know, bug out thing, but starting to create an example of, you know, how do we uh, organize, resource and govern ourselves as things continue to fall apart around us. And so when you were in Vermont, you didn't just wait for a disaster, right? Like you actually had a specific, like you began building alternatives. Tell us a bit about what you were doing in Vermont with Cooperation Vermont. Yeah. So with, you know, Cooperation Vermont, our first, you know, project was uh, to purchase the Marshfield uh, Village Store as a way to center ourselves in, in the community um, and to be able to rapid fire engage with a broad spectrum of, um, of the folks that live around us so that it's you know, not just uh, people on the left talking to people on the left or people of particular you know, political leaning talking to people of that same. So it's not just you know, the, the um, echo chamber of things, but really doing real community organizing and, um, you know, building worker solidarity uh, by putting us in a place that is where everybody in the community comes to the Marshfield Village store and we're able to have real time uh, engagement and conversation with folks um, from a broad base. And uh, I always tell people that some of my, you know, favorite conversations with uh, start with fuck Biden. Right. And because uh, we get we get a good bit of that. And I'm just, and so I was just like, yes, let's have that conversation. Yes. Fuck Biden. But here's why. 
And, um, and so it's been, it's been a really great opportunity to do some of that work and to build uh, some of, you know, those relationships. And, and I think that that's a, it's a key thing that I want to point to is that oftentimes, um, well, I just want to emphasize the importance of doing revolutionary work really is relationship building, right? Um, it's making connections with other human beings in a way that creates uh, solidarity amongst ourselves. And I don't think there's any shortcutting that. Um, you know, Michelle, uh, I'm going to stop because I've been in the Marshville Village store and I've been throughout New England uh, and like it's kind of a big deal. Right. So for folks who may not be in Vermont and may not understand the importance of a town village store, tell us what a, a village store is and more importantly, what it means to a community like Marshfield. So, you know, to a, a town like Marshfield. There's one little convenience store that has like, you know, super convenient goods and a two pump gas station. And then there's the Marshfield Village store, which has, you know, basic groceries. It has a deli and um, and and is like the hub for the community um, coming and going. You know, there. Oh, look, there, there we are. There um, you are. There we are. It's so like um, you know, it's it's a. Uh, it's the community store. Um, and then, you know, there's our library and community center, which our events, you know, take place out of our community concerts and all the other things. But really, you know, aside from when we have specific events or community supper um, at the, the library space, uh, the Marshall Village store is where really community congregates in, in our town. Um, and so that, that was the first thing we did. We converted it to a worker-owned cooperative. And, you know, in addition to actually doing that work, um, you know, and also just a shout out to thank David uh, Cobb here, David Cobb, and, uh, and Kamal Franklin for, uh, from Community Movement Builders, who's also part of the People's Network for Land and Liberation that Cooperation Vermont is part of, uh, came and, and did a series of uh, trainings for folks um, when we were in the conversion process uh, for, you know, changing the store's ownership from a family-owned business to a worker-owned cooperative. And that was a really great opportunity to do, you know, broad-based, um, you know, education um, with the community about, well, what is a worker-owned cooperative? And, you know, why does that matter? And why do we, you know, think that that's an important uh, model? And, um, having conversations around economic democracy. And I just want to point out, look up on the screen, Michelle. This is one of my favorite photographs <laughs> of you. Uh, there you are, merchant that you are, uh, selling some uh, groceries and having a conversation with the Marshfield resident. Yeah, and uh, that guy is Ken Goki. He comes in for coffee every morning and um, actually just uh, put power steering fluid in my truck right before I... Uh, got on the road today. <laughs> and so folks, and, town, and so Michelle, Michelle literally like just sort of casually said, so, Hey, here is this, the central part of a rural economy. It's the, it, it is these uh, grocery store. It is the convenience store. Uh, like right there, you share a parking lot with the gas station. Like I know that's kind of the center right there on route two. Right. And oh, by the way, been 150 years in that community and it operates now as a business. How? As a worker-owned cooperative. As a worker-owned cooperative. And Michelle, 
walk us through what that actually like what did it take to 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 transition from like employees who had always like they were running the joint but they had never been owners they weren't thinking like owners what was that process like and what lesson did you learn yeah so in in this particular instance there were folks who were working as employees who um acted like they were you know employees and and but then there were a couple and one in in particular who uh was related to the previous owners but you know always really ran the deli and then a um, a young man who you know grew up working in the store and then was just working there part-time while he was working at our local school full-time um, who really did take a lot of pride in in the the store and it and it does mean a lot to them personally and um, but they you know didn't have ownership shares and so you know for those folks they were I think uniquely um, really poised to be able to step into to those roles as a worker owner because they you know innately felt um, that that sense of, you know, responsibility and care for the work that they did um, at the store and for the community and, you know, the, the role that the store has in the community. And then for other folks, you know, it's been, it's been an ongoing, you know, process. Um, and, uh, you know, these things don't happen. You know, we, it, there's no shortcut to building good culture, right? You know, we can't policy our way or bylaw our way into, good culture. Um, we have to build it and that takes practice and it takes relationship building. And, um, and that's, that's where we're at. So, you know, we're, we're there. Um, and, and it's working. And, and I'm super pleased to say that it's working. <laughs> it's totally working. And I also got to say like, it, after you converted the Marshfield and thanks for the kind words to me and Kamal, uh, it was a great experience. So after y'all converted the Marshfield Village store into a worker-owned cooperative uh, to be really the center of the Cooperation Vermont experiment, you know, you are working now with Kali Akuno uh, and Grace Gershoni and others to create the cooperation or the uh, a new community land trust, right? Under yeah. the network of Cooperation Vermont. So y'all are already in the moving, building alternatives, getting things ready, and then boom, uh, once in a thousand year, once in a 200 year flood happens, which are happening all the time, right? And so on a dime, you had to shift. So you took the lessons learned from uh, Katrina and New Orleans and did what? Yeah, so, you know, from New Orleans to Florida and back again, right? Um, you know, I uh, I knew that it, it was coming because it's, it's a, it's a, unavoidable I think for any of our communities we have to have that framework um, that uh, it was coming in, in prior to the storm like literally the month before as part of the planning commission and part of cooperation Vermont we were having conversations about convening a quote resilience hub uh, with all the folks who are you know organizing or working on a project you know like community supper the community garden folks our Twinfield Mentoring Together program, our recreation program, all the people that do different things in our community actually coming together to figure out how we can strengthen those ties and build those networks better and start to you know, cross collaborate and communicate and all of those things. And then we were talking about putting together um, like a food sovereignty uh, project survey, really just trying to figure out what food is being produced 
you know, locally and, you know, would it meet the caloric needs, which it would, of course, for our community, because we have some larger farmers, but then, you know, how far out would we be able to do that? So kind of doing some of this planning and prep work um, and then boom, right? I mean, I knew it was, you know, probably going to come, potentially going to come, uh, just given my orientation that it always seems to come. <laughs> um, but I just didn't think it was going to be so soon. And so when it did, you know, the night of the storm, we ended up sheltering uh, like three dozen people in the, the apartment that I live in above the store, in the store, in the parking lot. And then um, by the very next afternoon, before we even had electricity back, we had organized with, you know, our uh, one of our local food vendors who has like um, Mo's Backyard Barbecue. He's got one of those big barbecue trailers to uh, come out to the parking lot and we fed, you know, a couple hundred people uh, before we even had electricity back. And then we were able to organize with our um, neighbors to have, you know, 800 gallons of uh, water on a truck outside of the store because our water system completely went out. Our water and sewage went completely out for the village. So unless you had well or spring driven, and then of course the wells were questionable with contamination should be tested. Um, but, you know, we in the village had zero running water at all and the sewage system collapsed as well. So the store within, you know, 12 hours of the storm having hit was prepared to both shelter people. We were prepared um, to feed people. We were giving out water. We had, you know, the 800 gallons. We were giving out all of our bottled water that we had stockpiled. And, um, and then we're starting to, you know, connect with neighbors and putting up, you know, uh, the process for us to be able to organize volunteers, people who needed help or both, um, and uh, starting the process for some of that mutual aid work. And, and it was about 10 days before we saw a single really outside resource come into the neighborhood. And it was only after the governor's um, uh, conference where they apparently were unaware that Marshfield didn't have any water. And it was a little bit of a shit show for sure on behalf of state government. <laughs> and, uh, and so then it, we were news. We were all of a sudden we were news, right? So Michelle, I got to say, you're really begging uh, me to uh, ask the question, because you're answering the question that Z Manny, who is a uh, frequent uh, participant uh, and uh, viewer listener here on Redneck Gone Green, Z Manny asks, can you compare how mutual aid responses to such crises differed from more conventional responses in terms of how they approach this and in terms of how effective they were? Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's like second, first, same as the first, right? Like this, it's <laughs> absolutely nothing new in that, you know, the, the folks that are organizing locally on the ground, literally anywhere you go that are doing any kind of mutual aid work um, or self-organized, you know, work, whether it's, you know, leftist or otherwise, right, actually have a handle on what's needed, what's going on, how best to serve the community. And then you have these overfunded, ineffectual just stumbling all over themselves groups and i'll put the red cross at the top of that list so you know decades now disgusted with the entire entity ask me more it's a whole <laughs> other show 
and um, you know, and they just they 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 have so much money, and they come in and they just fumble around, and they don't actually help, and it's just like insult to injury. Honestly, it's like one thing to be stuck with the resources that you're able to muster, you know, locally, or that come to you within reach, and and being able to like do the work that you need to do, but then to have like these fake resources around you that don't actually help aren't really available to you, but you can see like in your face all the time, the amount of money, so much money that goes to entities like the Red Cross. And all they do is just piss it away. It's disaster capitalism at its best. I mean, honestly, aside from FEMA, like the Red Cross are the biggest disaster pimps like on the planet. So Michelle, I uh, I want to make sure uh, to to let you know that another long time or frequent uh, long time this is our fifth episode, right? Uh, but but somebody who who participates with us uh, and really makes me excited uh, to see Kelly again, who's uh, really been a phenomenal uh, a participant in the chat. Uh, Kelly writes in to say this is so infuriating. It's so awesome that you, Michelle. Uh, we're there to help. So I just want to let you know that, you know, I'm not the only one, Kalia, like many people who hear this story recognize you're kind of a rock star, right? Uh, about being able uh, to, to, to do what it is that you're doing. But it also pushes me to bring Z Manny's question in, who, who says, can you talk about what you've seen in people's relationships in situations like this, whether it's a worker-owned cooperative in terms of the quality of life for those operating in the institution. So this is a real like legitimate question. Like, like, have you seen, and cause I've met Jack, right? Like I've met, uh, you know, like, uh, like I've met these people, right? Uh, I've talked to them and I'm, I'm asking you, have you seen any change or is it? No, no, they're just they're They are who they are. They just got a different job. Uh, the answer is actually both, right? Because these, <laughs> right. No, 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 like these were folks that are community minded, like already, right? And 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 I have to just put a plug in on on Jack because he flew out the morning of the storm to he because he also coaches basketball at our our local school and they were having like this basketball convention thing where some of the kids and the teams and the coaches. Anyway, this dude was in Vegas, right? And uh, so he's calling me once we got electricity, could actually make phone calls again, because again, there's no cell phone reception at all whatsoever, not even on a good day or a bad day um, in Marshfield. So if you lose electricity, you lose Wi-Fi, you lose the ability to communicate with the outside world. Um, we're back to like sending smoke signals and carrier pigeons. Um, so, but Jack calls me and he's just like, oh my God, I feel so bad. You know, I'm not there. My community needs me and I'm not there. And and it's like, as I'm hearing the slot machines in the, in the background, I'm like, okay, Jack, <laughs> I'm going to hang up now. Um, but, you know, Deb and, and everybody else, like all the folks that were already, you know, at the store were community minded. And, you know, we had our employees who were walking down their roads because you can't drive by car. So they were walking and they were taking their one wheels to like come in and work at the store. We had a couple of, you know, our coworkers that stayed overnight with me to like help, you know, with all the folks who were uh, sheltered at the store overnight. Um, I mean, like, literally traversing the terrain on foot to, to be able to get to the store as the community center to be able to help their neighbors. 
Michelle, I'm gonna, yeah. So Jack and Deb, who I personally met, and I met them before they became worker owners. So I got to tell you, like straight up, they it, during the mutual aid during the flood, they acted like they would have anyway, because that's the kind of human beings. Yeah. They are. And but, Tom and Carl. But the difference is, as worker owners of the store, are you starting to see them think and act differently? Like instead of just being worker employees, are they starting to think and act like worker owners? That's the question I'm posing to you. Yeah, absolutely. That's the I, short I, answer. Yeah, right. Because and this is the thing: I haven't been back there since it converted, but I know the I knew the answer was yes because that's what happens everywhere. I'm also going to let Absolutely. you know that Jack Rabbit, our technical producer, our executive producer, you've inspired him. He's usually off camera, but I can see he's eager to jump in. So, Jack Rabbit, uh, welcome to the, this side of the camera. What's on your mind? Coming hey, on. Thanks, thanks, David. Hi, Michelle. Again, um, uh, yeah, thank you so much for being part of our of our show. <clears throat> really appreciate it so much. You know, I had to come. I had to jump in because uh, when you started talking about um, when you started talking about the Red Cross and FEMA and how worthless they are, it really just kind of reminded me so much of my experience in um, uh, Occupy Sandy when, um, you know, Hurricane Sandy hit New York. And, you know, uh, some friends of mine, you know, the next day they went down to, um, uh, I forget exactly where the location where it, it, it hit on the beach, but, um, you know, they just went down there kind of we are use our Occupy network that we had built, you know, just kind of like the connections that we had made and really just kind of like put together a disaster response and didn't see anything from, you know, FEMA or the Red Cross for a really long time. And it's just amazing to hear you talk about that. What fascinates me is like, you know, you bring up how much money they have, right? There, if there's so much money in these institutions, right? Like FEMA, the Red Cross, they have amazing amounts of resources and yet, for people who are on the ground working where their disasters are happening, we see it happening in Maui as well, right? I mean, people just like being left to fend for themselves. I think it's fascinating that we're talking about mutual aid while we're seeing more and more of these natural disasters are happening um, one after the other. It's either, you know, it's the pandemic, it's a fire, it's, you know, it's a hurricane, it's a flood. And you know, just, I, I mean, I think that what I, I would love to hear you kind of talk about is that people, like, people who think that there's going to be a cavalry in the federal, in the form of the federal government who are going to come to help them out, I feel like I would love to hear a little bit more about your your thoughts about that. And And like you said, I think that there's definitely, like, you know, disaster responses maybe a future redneck on green that we might want to have. But I just like, you know, if you can just comment on the contrast between that national federal, like uh, those institutions versus like the effectiveness and the need for uh, a, a ground level mutual aid kind of, uh, kind of response. If you want to, if you want to kind of touch on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hang on one sec. And so I'll just point out, and, and that is that uh, that adorable child uh, we've been seeing yes. in, in the background. So welcome. He wants to be hurt so bad. Say hi, Doug. <laughs> hey, welcome, to, welcome to the life of a radical organizer and mom, Michelle. <laughs> 
<laughs> Hashtag mom life. Okay. So two things. One is like, I, uh, it was a little bit different in, in my experience here recently in Vermont in that, um, you know, folks have a different kind of relationship to government. One, like all of our local governments are volunteer governments, right? Our select board is a volunteer, our planning commission is volunteer. Like we have a, a full-time, you know, paid town clerk and an assistant clerk. And, a, and then our, aside from our three-person road crew, those are the only employed people in, in our town government, right? And um, so there's a, a different kind of, you know, relationship. And then, you know, I feel like they're for a variety of reasons, um, you know, both, I think, on the, the left and the right of traditional, like, you know, political linear spectrums, uh, people have a different perspective than other places that I've I've been. And I don't think that they were actually waiting for the government to, to show up uh, to a large extent, except for when it was like days in and the water crisis is still a thing and we don't have any running water. And it's like eight days, nine days, 10 days. It's just like, okay, well, shit, shouldn't somebody be helping, right? And, um, you know, there's a different level of built-in resilience in, in, Vermont in general, but where, where I'm at in particular, but that is needed across the country, right? There's a, an article, um, that, uh, you know, basic, if you go to, to Kali Akuno's blog spot, it's, um, navigating the storm. And it's one of the last articles that he published on that blog spot. And it, and it, uh, I forget the exact title of it, but it's like, what what's to be done basically and within that he talks about organizing within a 10 mile radius and if you're in a tighter urban environment maybe that's 10 blocks if you're in a really rural environment maybe that's you know 20 miles um rural and 20 miles but really starting to organize to like collectively you know, prior to a disaster, start to think about, you know, the, the food security needs of the community and how can we be working together to outside of, you know, the capitalist uh, infrastructure, you know, systems for our food. Can we be organizing for that? What kind of, you know, security and um, communication, you know, channels can we be creating? Like, what are the things that need to be done now in preparation in our community so that we're stronger, tighter, and more prepared for all events, you know, because like, let's face it again, there's no, there's no safe space, one in empire or in this climate crisis for literally anybody. And we have to be building those infrastructure and supports and those relationships now, because waiting until, um, you know, disaster strikes is, is really not, not the look. And Michelle, I know that you're on your phone, so you're not able to be following the, the comments and chats, but so I'll just let you know, our mutual friend, Michael Nugent, who you met uh, during the eco-socialism from below, is here giving you some love. And I feel like you channeled Michael because Michael literally asked, mutual aid work and the response to crisis seems like they would be fantastic for developing a radical sharing culture. Can you explain how building this culture is related to a strategy of build and fight and how the networks and culture y'all are building 
can be protected as it scales up. I kind of feel like you already said that, but I just want to point out, Michael, the lady didn't even know you asked the question and boom, <laughs> she's Johnny on the spot answering it. I also want to let you know uh, that Z Manny wrote uh, back in again and said, fascinating point about how this kind of organic engagement is more perceptive and flexible. It seems to be actually focusing on the situation at hand in its own terms. Those that are affected are calling the shots, right? And I think that there's something very powerful about, like this, it's not just a talking point to say the impacted community should be like uh, centered. It's like, no, like if you, like the Red Cross, they mean well. Do they? <laughs> Do they? I mean, I think that the average- We're gonna have you back on. Kelly says, yeah. oh my God, like, would be so great to have her back on for another show to do a how-to showing the steps to do this in our own community. So we're coming to the end. I'm going to put you on the spot, Michelle. You're my friend. Will you promise to come back on and do a how-to get ready to do mutual aid? Because you were kind of uniquely positioned and seasoned to be able to do this from the shit show that you went through in Katrina. Yeah, uniquely positioned from shit shows, multiple, because again, it was two more hurricanes in, in Naples. And, you know, I I left to Vermont to kind of get a little breather from all of that. And and either this climate crisis is real, 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 or I'm just like the harbinger of death. I, I can't really decide which at the moment. But the answer to your question is absolutely. I'll come hang out with you anytime, David. All right. Well, looky here, y'all. This hour has just flown by. Uh, you heard it here. Michelle has promised to come back on, Kelly. So thanks for giving me the excuse to put her on the hook uh, to make sure she comes back in for a more specific how-to. And you'll notice it wasn't much of a hook. Michelle, before I, and I'm going to tease y'all, stick around for a special announcement after Michelle Edelman McCormick's last uh, final thoughts. Yeah, so oddly, my final thought really is, uh, one, I apologize uh, for looking down a lot. and for, I always talk with my hands a lot anyway, but I was looking down a lot because I'm realizing that I'm actually really super uh, emotional about all of this, and it's hard for me to sometimes focus when I get this hyper. And, and for my final thought is, I, I may be preaching to the choir in this audience for anybody who's signing into a Redneck Gone Green uh, podcast, um, but if... You know, you hear of anybody trying to go to Maui or do a thing in Maui or provide, you know, donations, or organize this, that, or like, I cannot be clear <laughs> about this unless it's being requested, directed, and organized by a truly indigenous, you know, group that's doing the mutual aid work already on the ground. Don't get involved. Don't mess with it. Leave it alone. Only like, ser like seriously, just follow the, the lead of the folks who are working on the ground, who are actually from that affected community and the indigenous folks that are, that are doing that work. So folks, you've been listening to and or watching Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. We've been talking to Michelle Edelman McCormick. Michelle is a, a co-founder of Cooperation Vermont, is creating a community land trust using these radical ideas, is uh, an all-around kick-ass organizer and human being. And for those 
Uh, remember, like, comment, share. And for those of you who stuck it out uh, to the very bitter end, Jack, come on with me because I want you to tell folks we got a special episode of Redneck Gone Green, two in one week. Tell us about it, Jack. Well, I am really uh, very excited to uh, point out that on Thursday, we're going to be having uh, a special uh, redneck on green response to the uh, Republican debate that will be happening on Wednesday night. So I'm very excited about that. Um, that will be a new thing. Please do join us. We don't have a, an exact time that we're going to be on for that one, but we will announce it. So if you're not already subscri uh, subscribed to our Substack, please do. Um, all right. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Definitely uh, please like, share, and subscribe. And uh, I'm going to let David sign us out. It's great to have everybody here. Thanks so much for being part of it. And remember, folks, thank you so much, Jack. Thank you again, Michelle Edelman McCormick. You know, I love you. I, I so much appreciate you. And I appreciate you, the viewer and listener. And I'm going to sign off the way I sign off every time. Like we are in a crisis. It's not coming. It's here. And what we do now is critically important. And from my perspective, I'm planning to live in a new world, not just to talk about it, not just to vision it. And so for me, I can't stop, won't stop. Join us here every week where we do deep dives on the what is to be done. Peace. Love and rage, y'all.